A trip to Antarctica. In the last century, that was as risky as a trip to the moon. Ernest Shackleton survived, but he had to execute his cat. Poor Mrs Chippy. Captain Scott and Captain Oates never came back and became exemplars of British heroic failure. These days, it's possible to visit the frozen continent without the element of Russian roulette and also without the cocaine pills that kept all of those great explorers cheerful as parts of them blackened and fell off. If you're prepared to deal instantly with any coffee spills, it is possible to go on holiday there, if that's the right word. My name's Matthew Sweet and this is the podcast from 1843, the new sister magazine of The Economist, where you can hear our contributors in conversation. And with me is our travel editor, Sophie Roberts, who's been experiencing Antarctic hospitality for the April-May issue of the magazine. Sophie, if you go to Antarctica today, are you a tourist or are you an adventurer or an explorer, some more romantic category of being? You can be one of all of those. It depends what your motive is to go. But the thing that you all share is the the people that make it possible. That is a company called ALE, which stands for Antarctic Logistics and Expeditions. And that company has an HQ on the ice called Union Glacier. It has satellite camps in the South Pole and Mount Vincent, which is the highest mountain on the continent. So you can be a climber wanting to go to Mount Vincent. You can be an expeditioner wanting to ski to the South Pole. You can be a tourist wanting to take in the the formidable sights of the Ellsworth Mountains. All of those things are possible because of this particular and very singular company that operates on the ice. Um, I will be honest, I was the tourist. Um, My visit was as simple as getting on a plane. Is it very clear who belongs to which category when you arrive? Who are the tourists and who are the explorers? In that environment, there is a very curious mix of people. There are the staff, I think, on ice, and they are everyone from meteorologists to mechanics to people that um, cook and clean. There are also adventurers who are embarking on extraordinary journeys across the ice on skis, um, fulfilling dreams. And there are climbers who are trying to summit Mount Vincent, which is the tallest mountain on Antarctica. But as to the people that were there, I loved it because it was there was one gentleman I'd met who had saved up for a very long time to go down to Antarctica and climb Mount Vincent and he worked for a casino, a fairly regular job. I also met billionaires. A few weeks before I was there, David Beckham was on the ice playing a game of football. How much does it cost to get there then? You don't get much change from $25,000. You can spend an awful lot more if you want to go to the South Pole, um, which is a a day trip. Not quite a day trip because there's neither day nor night in Antarctica. It strikes me that this is quite an interesting place to think about the impulse to travel and the impulse to go as far as this and whether or not that's a particularly admirable impulse. Well, I struggled with it when the great moral compass in my life, my mother, said to me, why are you going? And I found myself without an answer. And I thought about it a lot when I was there. And part of it was answered by some of the extraordinary people I found down there doing, I think, really admirable things, including members of the scientific community who are looking very, very closely at what what, what is happening on the ice to tell us what's going to happen to the rest of the world. 
There is the element of box ticking, which was definitely present in both me and in others that I met who, you know, they, they, they're privileged people who've traveled a great deal and Antarctica was a hole in the map and they wanted to fulfill, fulfill that. I don't know quite how admirable that is, but, you know, each of their own. We all have different motives. Um, and rather people that are impressive athletes who saw the physical endurance um, that Antarctica requires as something they wanted to put themselves up against. So it was a real mix. And when you're at the Union Glacier, what, what is it that you see? What's the lie of the land? It's extraordinarily beautiful. You see clouds. You become obsessed by clouds and the shapes of clouds and what the clouds are doing, partly because it de- determines what you're going to be actually able to do um, in the next few hours, day or night. You don't, obviously, because of the long, long, long polar days, see and get any sense of the kind of star-pricked sky. So that sort of pollutionless environment that normally we only pick up on night as human beings, you don't, you don't get that. But it's the pristine whiteness that completely bowled me over and especially because I was down there in the middle of December when the camp had already been operating for a month and it was still completely and utterly pristine. When I think of when me and my children walk out of our front door in the English countryside into snow, it's muddy within an hour. That is the amazing thing. There is nothing to pollute that whiteness. What are the rules you have to follow to make sure it stays pristine? It's very particular. If you were to knock your cup of coffee, you're expected to scoop the drips up off the snow. If you are a smoker, there is only one spot where you can smoke and your ash better fall into the designated receptacle. Fantastic. Antarctica has a smoking area. Antarctica does have a smoking area. Yes, I did find the smoking area in Antarctica. Yeah. (laughs) That seems to speak volumes about how our relationship with such places has changed. I mean, there would have been a time when this area would have been regarded as uh, the white hell, the location of the worst journey in the world, in the words of absolutely cherry Garrard. Now it's this fragile space that has to be protected, that we have to tread softly upon. You know, I saw one one tiny, tiny element of that landscape at Union Glacier. I did not go to the pole. I did not go to Mount Vincent, where other climbers spend time. And the thing that I would say about it, and I'm a passionate about polar literature and, you know, the romance, the sheer extreme of it. But, you know, I had warm boots and my guide had summited Everest seven times and he was going for a short walk with me down tracks that had been uh, predetermined to be safe through um, satellite imagery and ground-penetrating radar. You know, these guys are logisticians and they make sure that every single thing you do is is both non-damaging to the environment and also not at risk to you as a human being. And that is the difference between 100 years ago. One of the guides that you talked to said that uh, skiing to the South Pole is like sitting in an IMAX theatre with a blank screen. So is it is it a place or a, or a not place? Is what strikes you what's there or what's absent? Antarctica is two things. It is, in my mind, an idea. It is also a place. That place is potentially highly repetitive. 
It is a white polar desert. I was in an interesting part of it where there were mountains and therefore some kind of topographical variety. But in other parts, the bits I didn't see but were described to me as the skiing, you know, sitting in an IMAX theatre um, in a whiteout, um, you know, that that is what it is. And then it must become more of an idea. When you read the polar literature, when you talk to the people that do it, you know, how do they fill that imaginative space? that's what really interests me about it is it is an idea it's not just a place on the map do you think that idea is a is a mutable one because it strikes me that again 100 years ago this continent could sustain this literature of adventure and we could read a story by edgar rice burroughs about penetrating the wall of ice and finding the land of the dinosaurs beyond it and somehow perhaps our familiarity now with regions like this means that they can't sustain stories like that anymore. I think that the way we engage with it is more managed and more understood. And as soon as something is managed, in my view, it rips the romance from out beneath its feet. It is mutable. It has changed why go? You have to ask yourself of that now when you don't have to sail all the way from England on a boat called Endurance and get stuck in the ice. You know, it took me a couple of days and effectively it costs a bit of money. Um, and that is very different. But I must be distinct between the two things. I was a tourist at Union Glacier. There are other people out there who are still going right up against it and risking and losing their lives as they try to do great marches across that continent. And I think that it is going to continue to change for as long as there is the demand, the demand is rising, people want to see it. No place on this planet appears to be without a tourist. Um, and that, in a way, was, was, was something that surprised me. You describe being overcome by a feeling of alienation while you were there. Could you, could you describe that? Well, I am passionate about travel in wilderness areas, but the wilderness only makes sense to me when there's a human being to interpret it. And when I was in that very, very lonely spot and it was just one colour, I didn't know how to relate to it. I couldn't touch it in a way that I'd been able to in other parts of the world. You, you, I felt like I was the closest... I felt to being on another planet was Antarctica. So it gave you a sense of alienation, but though, was there any other quality that went with that? When you feel alienated, you reach out to try and find contact. And that's quite difficult when you're in six layers of polar um, goose down. Um, but there was one moment where I did start to connect with something that was kind of spiritual it was extraordinary you know we were we were on the the blue ice near union glacier and uh, there was an area where these little drips from the rocks had started to erode some of the ice below and it created these kind of strings of crystals that ran deep deep down into the ice below that ice runs as deep as an ocean and i started to appreciate that there was bubbles in that ice that were as old as the first man found in 
the United Kingdom. And whether it was the real bubble or I was relating to the stories that I'd been told, it was incredibly humbling. And that is what Antarctica does. It makes you realise you are one tiny, tiny, tiny little thing. And so is humanity on the face of a much, much wider, bigger, emptier Earth. Now you're back, are you dreaming of Antarctica? I'm not dreaming of Antarctica, but the next story I put myself on was Siberia, so something must have happened. I mean, I did like the emptiness. There was something about it that was so incredibly compelling. I think I've come away with a respect for something that sits outside tourism. These guys can cater to tourists, but they've certainly um, learnt their profession with scientists. For instance, they remove all their waste from Antarctica. Um, human waste gets taken off that continent. So at the end of a, of a season, there, the, none of it is there, nothing, no evidence. Now, if only... That could be done on the Costa del Sol. If only that could be done in certain parts of Africa where tourism is damaging the environment. So I, I, I did come away with a very, very big lesson that you can touch the earth more lightly than perhaps we do. Thanks very much indeed, Sophie. If you want to explore Antarctica with Sophie Roberts, then read her piece in the April-May issue of 1843. In print, on our app or online at 1843magazine.com. On the next podcast in the series, Sophie Pedder is scared by Marine Le Pen. <laughs>